book of the prophet Hosea. Hosea, of course, wrote to God's people in a time of adultery. A time in which they were devoting themselves to everything and everyone but the Lord. And Hosea was tasked with displaying that, not only with the words that he preached, but even with the marriage that he was called to enter into. It was a very powerful, if somewhat unconventional, ministry. And at the very end of his book, he sets forth in summary the call that God sets before his people. The people who bear his name, the people whom he calls his holy people, but yet who wrestle and often give in to their sin. He says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods. For in you the fatherless finds mercy. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? I have heard and observed him. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit is found in me. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. Amen. Lord's Day 33 is the second Lord's Day in the final section of our catechism. Kids, you think of our catechism, you think of three words, sin, salvation, service, or guilt, grace, gratitude. Well, this is the section that deals with our service, the way that we show gratitude to God. Last time, we considered why God's people have to do good. Why we can't just say, well, the grace of Christ saves me and therefore I don't need to worry about how I live or how I respond. It showed us that, that we have to demonstrate our gratitude to God. We have to show our love for Him by lives that are being renewed. That's why He sent the Holy Spirit to us. That's the way we show our gratitude. That's the way we draw the, the uh, unbeliever to know the Lord. That's the way we glorify God. And those who refuse, those who continue to live in their sin and their rebellion, well, they show by their lives that they have no part in Christ. So now we start to look at what that looks like. Now next week, and well, not next week, the week after, and following, we're going to start looking at specifics of how God calls us to a transformed life, a life of gratitude. Specifically seeing how He does that through first the Lord's or the, the Ten Commandments, and then the Lord's Prayer. But today we look at the overview, which talks about a life of repentance. What is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things. The dying away of the old self and the coming to life of the new. 
What is the dying away of the old self? It is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. Well, then what is the coming to life of the new self? It is wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a delight to do every kind of good as God wants us to do. Well, folks, that leads us to the fourth question here. We're to lead a life of putting to death the old man, of bringing to life the new. That involves doing good before the Lord. But, but what, is, what is it that we do that is good? How do we know that it's good? And the answer is only that which arises out of true faith, conforms to God's law, and is done for His glory. And not that which is based on what we think is right or on established human tradition. In other words, on God, not on man. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know how many people suffer from this affliction, but I have the constant drive to finish stuff. When I start a project around the house, it drives me just a little bit crazy until it's done. When my desk starts to gather piles of half-completed projects, it bothers me. Not the piles so much, but the, the projects that aren't done. It weighs on me until I can finally cross it off my to-do list. I can say, that's complete. And I'm not the only one afflicted with that desire to finish, to accomplish, to complete what has begun. And I think that... That desire that dwells in so many of us is why it was so attractive when the old-time evangelist preached that if you would just say a sinner's prayer, all would be well. If you would just confess your sin and your need for Christ and your reliance on Him, well, you're in. You're, you're a guaranteed to enter heaven. You're guaranteed to be saved. It's just something you can accomplish and cross off your list and you don't have to worry about it anymore. But as attractive as that idea is, the Bible shows us that it's false. Conversion, repentance, these are not one-time tasks. But it's a lifestyle that should characterize the life of every Christian. When we understand what conversion means, how it embraces all of life, how it demands our complete reforming after the image of Christ, we see that this calling is so big, so comprehensive, so deep within us, that it can't be accomplished all at once. It has to be something that embraces our every day, our every season, our every year. And it will continue throughout our lives. More than that, as we understand the nature, as we come to understand the nature of this lifelong process, we find that, that our Lord is calling us not merely to be changed, and certainly not to earn anything, but He's calling us to a life that is devoted to confessing Him, and to confessing our reliance on Him. And that's what we're going to see as we study the truth summarized in Lord's Day 33. Here we see how those who follow Jesus are called to an ongoing, a daily process of conversion that leads us to confess Christ daily. So that's our theme. Christ calls us to confess Him daily with our very lives. And that calling to confess Him daily with our very lives... Well, before we see what 
what that involves in terms of our first point, we need to recognize that it is about confessing the Lord. We think of confessing children. You think of confessing Christ. You might think of what we do when we join together and recite the Apostles' Creed. Or maybe you think of going before the elders one day and making profession of faith. And those are forms of confessing Christ, as is when we sit down with a friend or a classmate and explain what we believe. That's confessing Christ. But Jesus wants our confession of Him to be a daily thing that goes well beyond our words. Our catechism says that our confession of Christ involves our conversion to Christ. And that involves both our dying away and our coming to life. The dying away of the old man. That's, that's what we read about in Ephesians 4. When the Apostle Paul says that we are to put off concerning our former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. That's the sinful nature we're born with. The, the lust, the longing, the desire to do what is wrong, what is rebellious, what is wicked in the sight of God. We're to pray daily for God to work in us in such a way as to put that to death, to get rid of that once and for all. And then at the same time, to see the coming to life of the new man. Paul says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and, and put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So to put on the new man is to show the character of Christ in all that we do. The question is, what does that look like? What is this good that we're called to do? Now here we need to tread carefully because everyone has a definition of good, but not every one of them is equal. Our world calls it good when a person follows his passion even though it hurts everybody around him. Secularists call it good that 60 million babies have been killed through abortion since 1973. So good really depends on who defines it. God warns us of His judgment when we call good that which He has called evil. So if we're to do the good that God commands us, if we're to devote our lives to the good that pleases the Lord... We need to ask God to define good. And the final question and answer of our Lord's Day nicely defines what is that good that we're to seek. As we put off that which is bad, that which is evil, and as we take up that which is good, this is what it looks like. This is what it involves. And that definition involves one negative, one thing that we must not do or must not embrace, and then three positives. The negative, the negative is, well, we'll get to that in a second. But, but recognize that this is our calling, to pursue that which is good. That's conversion. To pursue that which is good in the sight of God. And the first aspect of that is the calling to repent of trusting in me and to confess trust in thee, that is, in Christ. Because you see, our default is that which is commanded against in that negative. Following after that which is based on what we think is right, on established human tradition, on trusting in men, in people, in things. From their first moment outside the womb, babies trust in their parents to provide for all their needs. 
Later on, they'll start to trust in their teachers, then in their friends, and then finally in that special someone that grabs their attention. See, our natural focus is horizontal. We trust in the people around us to meet our needs and to teach us right and wrong and to guide us in the way that we should go. And that's not entirely bad. A baby has to regard his parents as his providers. Trusting in ourselves and in others within limits is both okay and necessary. However, that limited trust can become unlimited and exclusive. A person trusts his health entirely to the knowledge and the skill of the doctors. A scientist comes to trust only in that which he can touch and test with his own two hands. They allow no other authority to be trusted more than that in which they have come to trust. And at that point, that horizontal trust, when it becomes exclusive, when it becomes absolute, that horizontal trust becomes idolatry. Something we trust instead of or alongside of God. And idolatry is terrifyingly easy to drift into. So Christians are called to repent of trust in me. That's what the prophet was urging God's people in our scripture reading this evening. He says, take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifice of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods. See, that's what they've been doing. They were under threat at this time in the history of God's people. They were under the constant threat of attack from Syria, which was immediately to their north. They were never sure when Assyria would make a raid to steal some of their people as slaves or to take one of their cities as their own or, or perhaps even to attack their capital. And so they began to pay Assyria, which was north and to the east of Syria and was bigger to come and be a bully toward their bullies. If Assyria would keep Syria occupied with a battle against it on the northern border, then Syria wouldn't have time to mess around with its southern border with Israel. And they were trusting in Assyria to save them, to deliver them. And likewise, horses. They're trying to build up their army, amass weaponry, so that they're able to stand firm against the enemy. But they were trusting that, that their number of soldiers and their number of chariots and their, their training with the sword would be sufficient. And even the works of their hands, the things that they had made, they were trusting in these things rather than in the Lord, identifying themselves by these things rather than God. Folks, this hits close to home. Our culture is filled with idolatry. What an obvious one, prosperity. Look at the presidential debates, the ads that keep popping up on television and the Internet. What would be the absolute end of the world if our economy would tank? And it would hurt. It would cause people to, go, to, to lose their jobs and, and have trouble paying their bills. But it wouldn't be the end of the world. But boy, you would think so. Somebody can keep the economy afloat. Boy, they are one step below God in our culture's view. And maybe not a whole step. Or what about fame? How many shows are there devoted to taking someone who's unknown and giving them great fame? 
American Idol, Bachelorette, whatever the other shows are, all devoted to taking that person, giving him his, his ten minutes in the spotlight. Independence. We want to be the only ones who call the shots in our lives. We want to be the ones who are masters of our future. Or health, freedom from pain. Why is the healthcare crisis such a crisis? It's because we want to be guaranteed a future that is long and pain-free. And if anyone suggests to us that we might have to suffer and that one day we might have to die, well, that's absolutely unacceptable. See, our culture is filled with idols. And that's not even to talk about the false religions. These are idols that live in our culture and are tempting to live in our hearts. We're called to repent of our reliance on them, as well as the lesser idols, the approval of men, the focus on our work, the identity in our work, the, the desire to have free time, me time. We're called to put all of that aside as that which identifies us, as that in which we trust, and to trust instead in God through Christ. We're called to trust in God on the basis of the promises He gives us. Listen to some of the promises He speaks to Israel. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from Him. I will be like the dew to Israel. Kids, think of that. The dew is that which refreshes the land. It waters the crops. It brings forth that which is green and lively. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be like the olive tree. God will make his people fruitful if they trust in him. God will give them all the blessing they need as they look not to the blessing, not to their work, their strength, their employer, their whatever, but as they look to God. That's what Jesus Himself proclaimed, isn't it? In Matthew chapter 6, God says, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek... And your heavenly Father knows you need these things. In other words, don't make gods out of the things that you need or out of that which provides the things that you need. But instead, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. We need not worry because we know that God holds tomorrow. God's the one who's able to provide exactly what we need. So we need to seek Him first. We need to seek His kingdom and His purposes and trust that He will meet our needs. He will fulfill His promises. Galatians 2 reminds us that especially as we stand before eternity, Men tend to turn in one of two directions. See, in our hearts, we all know that we need to be justified. Kids, you know that word, justified? It means that when we stand before the judge, we will be regarded as innocent. That's what it means to be justified. And men tend to turn in one of two ways. Either they turn to the law in some form, whether the commands of the Old Testament or the law of our society to be tolerant, to be progressive, to be whatever society says we need to be. In other words, earning our 
justification, making ourselves righteous. That's one way men turn. The other way men turn is to God's mercy in Christ. Well, Galatians 2 tells us, a man is not justified by the works of the law. Well, you see, we can't be. Because we fall short. James tells us that if we break one commandment, we've broken the whole law. We cannot be righteous. We cannot earn and accomplish on our own. So Galatians says a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And later on, he urges us, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All that we do, all that we are, our identity, our pastime, everything, must flow from our faith in Jesus Christ. Our spiritual life is from Him alone. Our justification is from Him alone. And if we would be pleasing to God, we must do it by coming in Him alone. So that's, that's pretty clear. If we would do what is good in God's sight, the first thing we need to do is repent of our trust in ourselves or other men. Repent of that horizontal idolatry. And trust in Christ. Trust in the Lord. And if we're trusting in the Lord, then we're going to allow Him to show us what is good. Our catechism calls that conforming to God's law. And so our second point is we need to reject my will and seek thy will. Reject what I want to do and do what He wants me to do. Again, our default is the exact opposite. It's to follow our own will. Right? When we're little children, as soon as we learn to talk... We learn to start getting around a little bit. I can do it. I want to do it. Let me do it. Right? We want to go our own way. We want to decide our own future. But that's a bad thing. Because that's following that natural desire to be our own gods. To sit on the throne. Well, here's the thing that we don't get. If we sit on the throne, we'll make a mess of things. Because we are short-sighted, we're foolish, and we're sinful. Inherently, if we follow after our own ways, we will make a wreck of our lives. Again, that's why Paul reminds us in Ephesians 4 of the folly of the Gentile mind. He says their thinking is filled with futility, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. In their sinful embrace of their own will, the unbeliever invariably makes a mess of his life. If you don't believe it, hang out with unbelievers for a while. See what kind of a wreck their family life is. What kind of a mess they make of things that work. How they invariably end up with their days filled with unnecessary drama. Because they wanted to do it their way. According to their desires. According to their plan. We are called to confess our faith by rejecting what comes natural. Remember Ephesians 4.22. Put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Put off those desires that come natural. Think what comes natural to the heart of man. Greed. Greed is something you wrestled with when you were still in the nursery. Not caring about that toy until that other person grabbed it. And then all of a sudden it's the only toy that would satisfy you. Hatred, something we teach none of our children, but they figure it out on their own, don't they? Rebellion, 
Well, that arises with no effort at all in the heart of the young, right? As well as in the heart of the old. How about lust? The desire to take up what is sinful, what has been forbidden. As soon as it's forbidden, that's what we lust after. That's what we long for. That's what we can't wait to get our hands on. Well, we're called to test the desire of our hearts. To determine whether it's good or bad, to be rejected or kept by seeking after what God has said is good. What God desires for us. How do we do that? By what wisdom shall our heart be renewed? Where do we find direction for what is good versus what is bad? Well, our catechism answers by pointing to God's law. The Ten Commandments and the first, or the two great commandments, these are the standard by which we measure all the options, all of the choices that set before us. But wait a minute, what about Galatians? What about where it says that, that observing the law doesn't work, that by the law no man... No, no, no. See, that's talking about justification. That's talking about how we made, are made right with God. We can't earn or accomplish our salvation. But nonetheless, we're to love God's law, to cherish it, to use it as the standard for how we show our thanks to God, for how we live in a way that is pleasing to God as those who've been saved in Christ. You see, it's, it's never been the case that God's people were intended to use, it's not to say they didn't do it, but they were never intended to use the Ten Commandments to earn their salvation. God's law was always intended to show us our sin that we might repent. And then having repented and turned to Christ, it was intended to teach us how we are to live a life of gratitude, a life of thankfulness to God. Jesus said pointedly in John 14, If you love me, keep my commandments. And where do we find those commandments? Well, he says in Matthew 5 in the, the Sermon on the Mount, do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Now, countless are the ways men have sought to get around what Jesus says there. They don't like the idea that God wants us to love his law and obey it. But try as we might, we can't get around it. The law is for us and for our children, and it is for our good. It frees us from that which would destroy us, that which would enslave us. And it frees us to live a life that is pleasing to God. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So if we would learn God's will for showing our faith, for living a life pleasing to Him. We need to love God's law. His commands show us clearly what God hates and wants us to reject. Here we find a standard for judging our thoughts and our inclinations. Here we find a road map for following Jesus as our King. The law teaches me how to reject my will and even how to recognize my will when it's wrong. And it teaches us how to seek after Christ's will. Hosea says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God. You have stumbled because of your iniquity. The prophet calls God's people to judge their own behavior, to see what is sinful, what is iniquitous, and to turn away from it. 
They must confess their faith not merely with words, but with a life that turns away from the emptiness and the ugliness of their idolatry and that turns back to the Lord. So the prophet concludes, Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. We find the ways of the Lord in His Word. In the Ten Commandments, which restrain our sin. In the prophets, which apply those commands to the life of God's people. In the words of the apostles, which teach us to embrace the law and apply it to our lives in the light specifically of the gospel. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. If we would live in a way that demonstrates our faith, that confesses Christ in all that we do, we need to take up God's law as the standard for what is right and good and true. And we need to cast aside anything that conflicts with it. But then finally we come to the hard part. Because it's one thing, brothers and sisters, to revise our standard for what's right and wrong. Rejecting my will and and seeking after thy will. And it's another thing to ensure that our trust is in Christ and not in ourselves. But when we get down to the heart... We get to that issue of who gets the credit. Who gets the praise? Who gets the glory? And that's the hard one. Because we are addicted from the word go. We are addicted to getting the credit. God wants us to give Him the credit. To give Him the glory. To give Him the praise for what we have done. And that's hard for us. Even our little children learn that phrase. Give credit where credit's due. And we see that from our earliest days, don't we? Look, Mom, I I washed the car. Or I I made my bed. And look, Dad, I I washed the car. Hey, did you hear about how I helped that little bird that fell out of the tree? We want credit for the good that we've done. And that's not with just little children. How many plaques are there on buildings to give credit to the people who were in charge of the construction of that building? How many institutions have been renamed to pacify and please the great big donors. That's why Israel began making gods out of the things that it made with its own hands. When men seek their own glory, they make a false god out of their glory. They're reaching for the glory that belongs to God alone. And Christ says we are to reject that. All that we do must be done for the glory of God. Didn't we hear that in Psalm 48? At the very start of the psalm. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God on His holy mountain. That's the purpose of the church. To give praise and honor to God. And at the very end. uh, Let's see. Verse close to the very end. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. We are to lead the world in showing God's glory and giving Him praise. The Apostle Paul urges us in 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whether you're doing great things that men everywhere will notice, or you're doing something small like like dusting the house or shoveling snow off the walk, 
or doing the dishes, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That's our calling, to reject our glory and to pursue in everything we do, from the most inconsequential to the most magnificent, to do it all for God's glory. But that's hard. We keep wanting to draw attention to what we have accomplished, seeking our glory. Just when the rest of our lives, it's ironic, just when the rest of our lives seem to be going well, seem to be getting devoted to the Lord, we've been relying more and more on the Lord. We've been more and more successful about doing away with our sins. We've been spending more time in God's Word and in prayer. We've been showing kindness to the people around us. Just when it seems like our walk with the Lord is finally on the right track, we brag about it. Oh, I've been doing so well lately. You know, I've been reading three chapters of the Bible every day and spending a half hour of quiet time, and I finally managed to forgive Bill. And just like that, we've stolen God's glory. We've made an idol out of our own reputation. Folks, if we ever are to glorify God in truth, we must come to see that all that we are, all that we do, belongs to and comes from God. And it's all meant to give Him glory. That's why He meant every, made every single one of us. He's the one who gave us our health, our strength, our knowledge and wisdom, our safety that preserved us to this day, the opportunities that we've had to advance His kingdom, the hardships that you've experienced. He gave to you in order to build up your faith and to sharpen your ability to rest in Him. Everything in your life He has given you. And so when you use it all to the utmost of your ability, it's meant to give Him glory. He gave you life. He gave you your gifts. He gave you that opportunity to serve. Now give Him the glory for enabling you to serve because without Him you couldn't exist for an instant, much less do anything worthwhile. Look what God promises to Israel through Hosea. They will be, I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree. His fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. In other words, God promises to bless His people richly and even to bless those who come alongside of them, those whom they live with and and work with. They will flourish. But look, it is God who has done it. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do anymore with idols? I've heard and observed Him. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit, says God, your fruit is found in me. If God's people would be honest, if they would be upright, not only do they need to do away with their idols, not only do they need to to follow after God's purposes, God's will through His law, but they need to recognize your fruit is found in me. All of the blessings, all of the good things, all of the success that you experience, it's from the Lord. Your fruit is found in me, says God. And that's not just for old Israel, that's for us. All that you accomplish that's good. And folks, if you stop and look at your lives, it's filled with good. Even in our times of deepest struggle, we are free to gather together and worship God without fear. 
We have food on our tables, clothes on our backs, work to fill our hands. We have family that surround us and encourage us, children, grandchildren, some of us great-grandchildren. We have a church family that's there even when the family of the flesh lets us down. You have health and health care. You have prosperity that most of the world can't even imagine. Freedoms that most of the world longs to taste. And every single bit of it was given by God. So when you accomplish something, when you're able to bless your neighbor, when you're able to finally attain that degree that you long for, when you land that job or complete that big project, recognize that it's God who gave you the gifts and God who gave you the opportunity and God who enabled you to have success. So when someone commends your good work, tell them thank you, but then remind them, you know, it's God who enabled me to do it. And if someone asks, how could you get so talented? How are you able to do that? I'm so amazed. Answer them honestly. Tell them that God is the one who has enabled you and you're thankful for His gift. And when no one notices, that happens, doesn't it? Don't seek out opportunities to be recognized. Keep still. Keep silent. Recognize that the most important one has seen exactly what you did. And that God is pleased. But always, let this be your desire. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Because well has God said, your fruit is found in me. This calling to confess God with our very lives, to confess Christ with all that we do, it's a comprehensive task. But it is not a burden. Young people, please see this. It is not a burden. When we're trusting in ourselves, we're enslaved. Because we will never be able to provide the way we need. It's freeing. When God leads us to put off that trust in ourselves and to trust in Him. When we're seeking to establish for ourselves what is right and wrong, good and bad, it is burdensome. It's freeing when God reveals to us what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, and the direction that we should go. And when we're seeking after our own glory, it's like a mouse on a wheel, always running and struggling and pushing, but never getting anywhere. But when we start giving God the glory... Folks, then we fulfill the deepest purpose that we have. So this week, think about the purpose God has given you, that your very life should be devoted to confessing Him. And begin looking. Where am I trusting? What is my standard? Who am I seeking to give the glory? And may God be magnified in our lives Amen. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You and we praise You for You are the one who has drawn us to Yourself. You are the one who has built us up. 
And you are the one who has given us this glorious calling to confess you with our very lives. Father, we pray that you would enable us to do so with joy and not with sorrow. Celebrating the opportunity to tell others who you are and what you have done. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.